Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 14, Katerina Lanfranco, recorded on June 18th, 2013. My name is Julie Fafan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. So we've been on a little hiatus with the podcast, I have to say. Summer tends to do that to you with lots of busyness. Um, Our last podcast, I was a little bit surprised by the reaction to it. It was called um, Arts and Worship and discussed how my friend Kimberly's church used a variety of art in their services weekly. And I think I got a lot of comments from people who actually didn't listen to the podcast and thought it was going to be some kind of religious preaching of some kind. And I just wanted to be clear for people that the podcast is really a discussion of how art and religion are intertwined, both historically and across multiple cultures and religions. And, you know, for everyone out there, just to know, Kimberly is Christian, I'm Jewish, and my mom is an atheist. So I think we sort of represented a large group of people and did not actually discuss any specific philosophy so much as just how art and religion really are uh, come out of the same place in some ways. Anyway, I thought it was a really interesting and intellectually stimulating conversation, and I'm a little sad that people had such a weird negative reaction without even listening to it. So I hope you'll give it a try, and trust me that it's going to be awesome. But that's sort of besides the point. I What I also wanted to mention was Sunday was Father's Day, and um, thanks to Instagram, actually, Mom, you made kind of an interesting discovery, didn't you? Yes, because I saw other people were putting up pictures of themselves and their fathers, and I looked around to find one, and my father died over uh, uh, 13 years ago, and that was before everybody had a camera phone, and I could not find one of us together. I'm sure there are a couple when I was an infant, but it's clear to me that in those days, if one person in your family was the designated photographer, you just did not have photographs of that person. And that made me a little bit sad, but I'm resolved not to let that happen in our family. Although I will say, I went looking for a picture, obviously, of my father for Father's Day, and he was he always the photographer. And the one that I ended up finding was one in which he had his eyes closed. And I remember saying to you that it's interesting to me that there will never be this kind of photo again. With digital photography, there's no way that there will ever be photos you know, where somebody's eyes are closed because you delete those ones because they're the sort of bad ones. And it made me think of an exhibit that I actually saw at MoMA which was, it was a wall of photos that somebody had um, gathered together, which was all photographs which contained the photographer's shadow, you know, and it was just random like flea market, whatever finds, but the uh, artist had curated it into this sort of wonderful collection and there are just never going to be those photos anymore. It makes me a little bit sad. Well, I just want to note that I took the picture that you Instagrammed. (laughs) It's true. Anyway, so our guest today on a total non-sequitur transition is Katerina Lanfranco, and she is a New York City-based visual artist making paintings, drawings, sculptures, and mixed media installations. And she explores the themes of nature and fantasy in her artwork. And I happen to love this quote from her from her Wikipedia page, which is she says, I make art as a way to think about and understand the world that I live in. Questions that I frequently ask are, how do I make the invisible visible? And at what point does fantasy become reality? And how do we construct our concept of nature. And those are all things I find particularly fascinating, not just in light of actually the conversation about the photographer's shadow, but I went to see the Bill Brandt exhibit at MoMA last night, which is sort of half fiction, half reality, which is also interesting. But anyway, Katarina, welcome. Thank you. I'm I'm so excited that you're here. Um, Can you take us a little bit through your story, your career path? 
Yeah, sure. Um, I have always sort of had an affinity for visual arts and making things. And it wasn't until having to decide what I was going to do for um, my undergraduate studies did I decide to pursue visual arts. Beforehand, I had been focused on um, just, you know, general academics. And I thought actually I was going to go into architecture, but decided that um, seeing my brother study architecture and how difficult and challenging it was, I thought, oh, I, I should do something fun for undergraduate. This would be really fun. So I went to UC Santa Cruz, which was a world away from where I was gr growing up in Toronto. I had to decide in February. Ah. <laughs> and I, I was like, okay, my, my shoes are full of slush. You know, I, I'm going to go to the West Coast and see how kind of a natural, naturally beautiful environment um, sort of affects me and is an, a place to be inspired. Um, so that was where I started. I took classes and I double majored um, studying sort of the theory and history of art and philosophy of art while making work. And I never, I didn't really take it very seriously because it was um, really enjoyable. And it, I don't know, it came kind of naturally, which is a weird thing to say, but um, it sort of felt like it was too easy to be a real career choice. Um, but then I, then I realized I, I had a, a mentor, one of my mentors, I had a, a lot of really great um, inspirational teachers in Santa Cruz, and one of them taught at the Whitney Independent Study Program in New York, and I was taking her seminar in, in visual um, theory called Visual Semiotics, and it was really heady, a lot of reading, and I, and I said to her, why don't you come and check out my show, graduate, um, my thesis show? And she did, and she was like, you have to go to grad school in art. And I'd always planned to go straight into criticism or theory, and it was really, um, that was like the turning point, I think, that, that I felt like maybe I could really explore this seriously. So I came to New York um, after deciding to go to gradu graduate school and getting in. Um, to all the New York schools and none of the West Coast schools. So I was like, okay, heading, heading to New York. And uh, I guess it just was a really fostering environment. I went to Hunter College and, you know, we had huge studios and a lot of um, independence. And I also had some great mentors there. And, and I just, um, it was like a natural extension of what I'd been doing as a as a child and even one of my graduate school professors um we were talking once and I realized that when I was a kid I used to there was like a, a shelf like a little shoe shelf in my closet that you'd have to like it's one of those closets that's under a set of stairs so it's sort of like a triangular shaped closet and in the back there was a little shoe shelf and I would go in there and sit down and draw you know um, for hours, and I realized that it was very similar to um, kind of the studio experience that I seek out now, like a private space to work. Um, so that's that was basically, you know, the realization that uh, 
I was going to be an artist in New York when it felt so um, sort of natural. Um, I think that's amazing. So, and you had a, I remember there was a fellowship or something in Germany. Yeah, I did a um, semester abroad in Berlin and I actually grew up in Berlin as a child. I wasn't born there, but my mother's from Berlin. So we, we moved when I was one and we stayed for about four years. And it's, um, German is my first language. So I've always, it took me a long time to learn how to read and I always contribute like the challenge I had with languages as kind of a, um, you know, it benefited my visual communication or visual thinking because the, uh, you know, in language, one word translates into very um, different words when you cross over from one language to another. But in visual language, you can communicate sort of cross-culturally more. I think I mean, that's there are true. Some, yeah, so I feel like I, I grew up being trilingual and I had this, I was really drawn to visual language because of this sort of challenge of the written and, you know, uh, the written word for me. It took a long time. I remember sitting in, in second grade and being like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to read <laughs> anytime now. <laughs> <laughs> so Germany and particularly Berlin, I think has a really vibrant street art scene. Um, has yeah. that influenced your work at all? Um. Well, I mean, I think the the sort of directness of expression. Um, my, I I grew up with my step grandmother, who was an artist in Berlin, and um, my maternal line, uh, my mother's grandmother was an artist there too. And there's like a lot of the, I think more just culturally, there's kind of a, I don't know, there's a real. Um, kind of force in the visual arts, whether it's expressed, you know, through German expressionism or musically or in street art, there's kind of like this real courage, you know, that it's not, um, it's not timid. And I think that, that, you know, it, it did the kind of experimentation that I was exposed to there and just the culture of the visual arts definitely was inspiring. Um, I started you know, I, I started really exploring the idea of these fantastical hybrid creatures and their Latin names while I was there. I had started in New York um, with this series, but I was able to explore it more there. I mean, Berlin is a, a fantastic city. It's, it's really art friendly. And the, the thing that I love is that you can really bike around and explore it in a really human scale. Like it's dense it's urban but it's um it, it's really integrated with nature i i grew up right by a place called grunewald and which is green forest and on um you know just down the street was this huge forest so i think that that you know going back to it as seeing myself as an artist going back to it it was really inspiring you know, mm. we did an earlier podcast where we talked to a botanist and we actually did talk about how in Germany people do value weeds and green space in a way that they don't in America. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's it's hard when you're kind of a cultured or you, you 
you've grown up with that sensibility to see it, you know? I mean, when I went, I did a residency in Japan um, in 2010, and that was a pretty significant culture shock in terms of ideas of the artists. Like in in New York, I mean, you know, there's um, this dichotomy of arts being really appreciated, but then also kind of people are a little suspicious of contemporary art. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Or my kid could do that. Or, you know, just (laughs) (laughs) like, what are you kind of, what are you trying to trick me with? But in Japan, you know, there's just this total, I felt like there's a real embracing of artists and artisanal, you know, ideas, whether it's in your home space or, even when someone's wrapping a package for you at a store or, you know, in food um, exchanges or, you know, tea ceremonies, it was just very through and through Um, kind of, there was a, there was a consideration of aesthetics, which I appreciated. Interesting. I'm wondering the, um, the project that you were talking about that you were finishing up in Germany with the Latin named creatures yeah, uh, I think that's something that you showed us. I should say that I the way that I met Katarina is I took two classes from her at MoMA. And I think in class one time, is that one of the pieces you showed us a slide of? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, th- those, um, those are some field note studies. That's what they're called. And um, those were the pieces that kind of really, um, I, I started, they, they began in New York, um, and then I kind of developed them in Berlin. But it was, you know, I was a little, even though I'd been to New York before, I was a little shell-shocked when I first came to New York from California. Um, and so I was working on paper only because I didn't know where to get, like, art supplies. And in studio, I had these, um, my brother often gets me, like, random things. So I had this this container of these sort of foam toys that were like animals, but not quite, you know, really generic. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to try to identify what these are, like in a traditional way, but, you know, using books and the internet and references and, and just assigning, um, assigning them like the closest sort of designation, um, scientific designation. And then what if I cut them up and recombine them to create these new creatures? And then I thought, um, in addition to that, what kind of environments would they live in, you know, and then paint those with gouache and watercolor. And, and then I wanted to have the Latin names as part of the visual experience. And I stamped those out individually. So there's sort of this, you know, um, objective print, even though it was handmade, it's still... Um, looked a little bit more um, official, you know. And so. those are some of MoMA uh, or the Museum of Modern Art here in New York has bought several of your pieces. Yes. Yeah, they were um, they were bought through the Roth, Judith Rothschild collection, and um, a total of fifteen pieces went into the MoMA um, collection, and they're in the drawings um, permanent collection. That's awesome. Have they been Drawing on? Department. Have they been on display? No, no, they haven't yet. Um, hopefully, you know they have so many things in the collection that they only show a small, you know, a, a fraction 
of what's in the collection, but um, no, not not that I know of. <laughs> Soon, hopefully. You know, this idea yeah. of uh, organizing and labeling uh, these different uh, fantastical animals is somewhat related, I think, to the exhibit that you're about to open now with the using glass flowers that you've made. And you talk right. about having seen the glass flowers at the Peabody Museum here in uh, Boston at Harvard. Uh, and it's there, the glass flowers are meant to be reproductions of the actual right. flowers so that uh, Victorians could see what they looked like. Right. Um, even though they might be from distant lands. And I wonder if you can talk about this exhibit and the process of making the glass flowers and then how you uh, turn them into your art pieces? Okay, well, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, I, I was in Boston for College Art Association Conference um, several years back and I went and saw this beautiful collection, um, the blush flowers and they they're just so stunning I mean they're masterfully made and you know I just I never in a million years thought I would ever be able to make anything like it or um you know they just they were a, a true source of like mental and um, artistic inspiration and basically I um looked into the technique of lamp working, which is also called flame working at a place in Brooklyn called Urban Glass, uh, um, like about six years ago before my last um, solo show here at Nancy's. The theme of that show was uh, sort of this meeting place of deep sea and outer space. And so I thought glass would really embody that content really well. So that's, I explored it for those qualities. And then um, I guess, you know, still remembering that impression of those glass flowers in the Natural History Museum, I decided to create my own. I've always loved shadow box spaces. And um, I thought, well, I could make my own, like they're not gonna be housed in a museum per se, but I can create a protective space using like a linen back shadow box. And um, both, you know, I feel like with scientific discoveries or kind of the ethos of the Victorian era where it was like, there's a lot of um, emphasis on the discovery of distant plants. And, um, you know, now it's, I feel like even though there's, there continues to be discoveries, I feel like a lot of, of, of things have already been discovered. So for me, it's really exciting to kind of have a new frontier, which is my own personal idiosyncratic, you know, creations as being like the potential of what might exist. And so the flowers that I made also use that traditional technique of lamp working or flame working. And then I just sort of um, create them with all, you know, different parts. I consider the stem, the, the leaves, the petals, the stamen, everything, and I do these sort of intricately sewn root structures with beads and sequins and uh, glass paint. And then based on how they um, appear, I give them a name and give them a Latin name. Um, so I'm kind of creating my own nature to discover. <laughs> That's really so, exciting. 
Your exhibit opens in two days, right? Yes. Yeah. It's called um, Wildflowers and Floating Worlds, and it opens at the Nancy Hoffman Gallery on Thursday, and the opening is from six to eight. And the show is pretty much half of the show are these flowers, and then the other half are these floating worlds, which are also in small shadowbox um, frames, and they're sort of even more um, kind of otherworldly forms that are combined with a lot of mixed media to create um, sort of these imagined landscapes. You know, so so both creating individual flower sculptures and then these sort of deeper um, illusionistic landscapes. That's the main sort of content of the show. It's interesting because the phrase floating world makes me think of Japanese prints. Right, and that's, it was interesting. It was kind of like a simultaneous aha moment when I was trying to figure out the name for the show and the name for these pieces. And that name came to mind also because of the glass. You know, there's, when you capture air through air bubbles or as, you know, um, baubles in the glass, there's a floating quality to it or ethereal quality. And then um, I, you know, the ukiyo prints have been very inspiring to me as well, um, both in terms of sort of reoccurring themes of nature. In fact, I saw some really great um, prints in an exhibit in Tokyo when I was there. And I was amazed to see that in these prints, you know, early on their nature was a central subject matter. Um, and then not only nature, but like specific trees would be, would become sort of um, famous or worthy of having a, a print made after them, you know? And I thought this is, this really resonates with my um, sort of feelings about aesthetics and nature. Um, so it was kind of a, it made sense to link it together, um, both kind of formally and concept wise. Can you talk a little bit about the process of putting together a show like this? Do you by yourself decide what goes into it? Does, is there someone who helps you, you know? Okay, well, um, that's an interesting question. I think it, it's different each time. So this show, um, I had, you know, made some of these works um, and uh, anthropology had gotten in touch with me about, you know, selling some of these works online, on their um, online, like home decor, but under the, you know, one of a kind artworks. And so it sort of prompted me to make a series and then, um, Nancy saw this series and thought, oh, could you continue to make more of these for a show? Um, and, you know, you have to remember that during this time, I was very pregnant or just had a baby, you know? So it was kind of a very unusually productive time. Like, um, it's, it's a combination of, uh, you know, I'm on a maternity leave. So it's the first time in a long time that I've been able to be a full-time artist um, and then I also have this, you know, life-changing experience of having, bringing a baby into the world. And so, you know, all these hormones, like sort of whatever symbiotic stuff that happens, inspiration, who knows? Um, and then kind of, uh, I don't know, a transference of this 
the emotional quality of like fostering life through the creative practice of creating work about you know creation I don't it was it was a really wild time anyway so that's how this particular show came about um and in, in in the past other shows like the I had a show um in California last year and that show was all site specific so it was it was based on kind of a concept of what the show would be and then I had about 10 assistants and you know it was all done on site it was this huge um Tyvek cutout installation um so that was you know that was really high stress really physical uh, the pieces were it was about 800 square foot room and the Tyvek went up to about 14 feet in some places and it was just like the entire you know, four sides of the room were covered in it with cut out, hand cut out elements. And it was all freehand drawn, the image. Um, the previous shows have, you know, some have been sort of larger scale. And the show is really special because it's these intimate um, experiences or intimate sized things. Um, and so it really, I guess my creative practice is both like a, an evolution or development in the studio, but also it mirrors like where I'm at and, and my, my life experience. So, um, yeah. What was the experience of working with anthropology like? Well, that's still going on, but it's, it totally is way different than, you know, the regular gallery experience because they, um, I respect them, you know, a lot as a company, but they, they work as a, as a corporation and they deal with units and purchase orders and different, you know, database things. And it's totally out of my comfort zone. Um, and they're going to be launching the work um, on their website next month. So after the show goes up here, I can sort of focus on that. Um, so there it's connected. I'm still in the process of doing it, but I have to say that one of, you know, I think all artists, um, sort of go through a period of like reflecting, working, you know, researching and like looking into the future. And I definitely, uh, this last year I was thinking about, you know, how do I, how do I make my work more accessible besides, you know, the gallery environment or the traditional contemporary art environment. And so it was really a welcome, a welcomed um, relationship. And if you hear noises, that's, um, <laughs> sorry about that. That's, I'm at the gallery and they're deinstalling uh, the last show so that my work can go up. But that's some construction noises or installation noises at the gallery. So you've exhibited, by the way, obviously at Nancy Hoffman Gallery before. Yes. Um, does that mean that when you were thinking of putting the show together, you already sort of know how you want everything to look since you know the space so well? Yeah, that I actually built a scale model for the last show I had in this space. They were in Soho. Um, Nancy just had her 40th year um, anniversary and there was a big 40th year show so um the gallery's been along around for a long time and it, you know the initial space was in soho and they moved here to chelsea um i would say i guess um you know four four years ago um and 
so I do conceptualize like how things are going to hang and the viewing experience of entering into this space. Um, since these pieces are smaller than some of my pieces in the past, it's a little easier. They're a little more, it's a little more forgiving in terms of the installation. Sometimes, I mean, you know, we're talking about hours and hours of installation time, but I think this will be hopefully um, quicker and less stressful. Can you talk about being an artist in New York and what some of the pluses and challenges are? Um, yeah, I'd love to. You know, it's interesting. I didn't, I guess, I didn't really know um, what it meant to be a New York artist until I was out of New York for a while. And I wasn't like a full-fledged artist, per se, because I was still in graduate school. But by that time, like the MoMA, um, you know, the collection, the Judith Rothschild collection had just purchased um, my pieces. I found out about it when I was like at a youth hostel in Barcelona. And I was just like out of my head with joy, you know, running around the beach. Um, but I was, I traveled. I had this, this semester abroad when I went to Berlin, I had three months of time between the end of my semester in New York and the beginning of my semester in Berlin. And on the advice of my, um, my former professor in Santa Cruz, who also teaches at the Whitney, um, I said, what should I do with this extra time? She, she said, travel, see as much art as you possibly can. And so I got a uh, youth Eurorail pass, which lets you do unlimited travel, you know, train travel in Europe. And I traveled around and I tried to like coordinate my um, visits with all the art fairs and, you know, museum hours and special exhibits. So I went all over um, Northern Europe and then down through Portugal and the south of Spain and through the south of Italy. Um, and then later on in, during the summer, I went through um, east parts of Eastern Europe. And I realized that there's nothing comparable to New York. You know, even the biggest, even Berlin, even, you know, Madrid, even Milan, like there, even Paris, their art scenes are so, so much, so much um, smaller, so much more manageable than New York. And uh, there is a lot, people, um, once you get outside of New York, you realize how much regionalism there is. So, you know, um, it's, it's kind of significant that you're from New York, then you get identified with that space. Um, you know, a lot of European collectors, you know, are kind of gravitate towards, you know, if they're from a certain country, looking at artists from that country. So I didn't realize that there was such a geographic split until I left New York. Um, and there's a lot of cachet um, when you're an artist from New York. And I think that there's more and more people coming to do that here. I went to um, Bushwick Open Studios a few weekends ago. And there's just so, it, I mean, it's just innumerable, the, the number of studios and artists and people just trying to make it or just being artists, you know. And, and the, the thing is that the city um, really has this rich history of ex exhibitions, collections, communities um, that I think that there's nothing like it anywhere else. On the flip side is uh. just the... Um, the sort of stress, um, you know, sort of the, the daily stress of the 
the, the experience here can be very draining. And then I find that a lot of people, you get so, it's such a challenge to actually make work that all of the richness that the city offers becomes, you know, it's like on the back burner. Um, so you don't actually get to go to all the shows that you want to um, see. I think, I mean, in the seventies, like when, you know, I know people who've been around the New York art scene for a while. And I think during the seventies, you could really go and sort of go to all the opening and, and see all the shows and stuff. And it wasn't like overwhelming. And now it's, you really have to pick and choose what you're going to see and how you're going to spend your time. And um, it's a little like, exasperating because there's just, you know, you can, you have to sort of decide, do you go to all the shows and to all the openings or do you make your work? You know, so I've missed out on a lot of great shows for the last couple of months because I've just been holed up in studio working on this show, which is fine. Um, but it's just kind of very, it's a very intense place, you know, and I think it's very um, challenging to balance your life because usually, um, if you if you're spending all your time making work you're sort of scraping by but if you have a good job it's going to be more than 40 hours a week and you don't have any time to make work you know so it's really it's a total balancing act and i see friends you know colleagues going in one direction or the other they get a really good art related job like in the design industry or whatever but then they never make it to studio you know or you see people who are in studio but like wondering if they should move to another place that's cheaper to live because they're they're not it's just hard to get traction um but I think the community is the greatest part in terms of like having so many people that you know and friends that you're friends with who are also making art and you can sort of have them come by um and give you feedback on your work or vice versa yesterday um I'm in a studio building in Red Hook and there's about a hundred studios on that floor. And yesterday I was, you know, walking over to see if I could find a box and out of the corner of my eye, I saw someone that I know from another setting and it turns out she was just moving in, you know, and she, it was, you know, joining the community and she had some boxes and it was like, this is great. This is such a New York experience where you kind of, all, whatever you're looking for, you can find. You know, and, and I don't think that that's the same in other places, a sort of like density, richness. It's just, I think artists are very sensitive people and New York and the sort of city environment is really um, like overstimulating. So it's this balance of like engaging with it, but then also kind of retreating <laughs> and like keeping your sanity. So I know you, you now have two children, right? Yes. And yes, have um, uh, has that changed your work, having two kids or having one? Or what? can you see that it was different when you had none? Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, when you have none, you don't, you're just like on an island to yourself, except for, you know, your partner. You're kind of, you're not responsible for anybody else. Um, and my husband has been really great with um, sharing childcare and, and, understanding when I'm really busy with studio work, kind of taking more of it on. And um, we've, we've figured out a good balance, but I think, you know, both, both times when I was pregnant with my son, I was also making these sort of like very fragile, delicate worlds under glass domes. 
Um, and so I feel like there's a certain nesting instinct that translates into the work. Um, and there's also, I feel like, you know, having first, Luca was born, my son was born in Japan um, during my residency there. So when I was pregnant in New York and had my daughter, Amelia, in Brooklyn, it was like reverse culture shock. You know, I was really uh, used to the, the experience I had in Japan. So it was like a little bit reverse here in terms of just people relating to me differently and um, social kind of responsibilities. Um, like there I could sort of just nest and be on my own. Um, so the work is, was both, I think the pregnancy has an impact because, you know, you put away all, all the toxic or mildly toxic stuff goes out of the studio. And then um, I couldn't... All the sharp things. Too. Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't go up and down ladders and do uh, big, heavy things. So I think the size, like I kind of shrunk down on size because I was being aware of my body. And, um, and then in terms of like the overall... I would say that, um, I don't know, there, you have to plan a lot more um, when you have, like having the kids, I just, like I visualize what I have to do in my studio much more, I take advantage. Like everyone has told me this before I had children, but that, you know, before, before you have a kid, an hour doesn't seem like a, a lot of time, but once you have children, like a, a dedicated hour, you can get a lot done. Um, so it sort of changes your sense of time. But then, you know, I am, I'm really looking forward to having the show up, all the work done, so that I can dedicate, like, my entire self to my children. <laughs> is, you your know, studio, sort of is your studio part of your living space, or is it separate? No, it's separate. And I couldn't, working with this really fragile glass, I could not have it be part of the same space. I was, um, when I had my studio at home, remember seeing my son and just being horrified that this like black stuff was coming out of his mouth. He looked like a little squid. And I can tell this story because it wasn't so bad. It was, you know, probably one of the least, um, you know, bad colors. He took, my watercolor palette had dried and a little black carbon piece had fallen off. And he basically had put it in his mouth and I retrieved it and it was the same shape. It had just shrunk a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I was like, that's it. I'm putting it all away. You know, I was like, that was, it was such a horrifying experience to find your, you know, toddler with like black stuff coming out. I was like, all right, uh, studio at home is not working out so well. Um, Has having the studio outside your home made you more efficient, do you think? Yes. And it's also a relief because once you're home, you don't have to continue working. Like my brain still works and I'll make little sketches and notations. But I, I walk into studio and pick up a brush or a pencil. Like I start right away. I mean, I know people have routines, you know, sometimes depending on what time I get in, maybe I'll have something to eat first or something to drink. But I, I hit the ground running at studio. I do have a bassinet set up there a bouncy chair and someone loaned me this rocking thing that you put the car seat into. Um, so I have a whole like setup for when the baby, I have the baby there, but um, it has, it has definitely made me more efficient. I think it's really, 
your personality type. Some people love having a workspace at home. I think if I had a huge house, sure, I could dedicate a room to it. But, you know, part of a room that you have to walk through or like, I don't know. It, my, my apartment is like a standard size for New York, but it just, I have to be able to stretch out. Like yesterday, I made this huge painting, you know, of a cloud on my studio wall. And then today I was trying out different shades of gray on my wall. And it's like, it's not a big deal. It's not my living room. It's not the bedroom. You know, it's, it's, it's supposed to get messed up. And I really enjoy having the freedom to do that. Well, I'm sorry to say that I know we have to let you go now. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I hope I wasn't talking to No, you were absolutely fantastic. I want to make sure that people know where to find you, though. Can you tell people where to find you online? Yeah, it's just my name. Um, it's www.katerina, K-A-T-E-R-I-N-A, Lanfranco, L-A-N-F-R-A-N-C-O.com. And then also at the Nancy Hoffman gallery website and I encourage you know everyone to come by and see the show it's it opens this Thursday from six to eight but it's up until August 2nd and I hope to be here for the you know at least for the first few Saturdays um, I'm really excited about the show and um, thanks for having me on I'm sorry about all the background noise if that's interfered it or... was realistic atmosphere we <laughs> felt like we were at the gallery with you <laughs> so um, thank you and thank you mom and yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, I don't know if I'll be in New York during the time that the exhibit is up but I'm looking forward to exploring your website oh great yeah and I'll post more pictures of the new work here. good so uh, I'm excited and I'm definitely going to make it there I'm sorry I'm going to be out of town for the opening but I will be by to see it myself Okay, we should we should meet up here then. Yes, let's do that. Okay, thanks so much, Julie. You're welcome so much. So as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com. Do leave us your comments or questions at balzerdesigns.com slash arting. And we'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag pound arting. And thanks so much for listening. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>